This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure that we're ready, that if necessary, we give everybody the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 in silent prayer. Uh, Our sins are nobody's business. It's between us and the Lord, so we have a few moments of privacy where in silent prayer you can confess your sins. We have the promise of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse or purify us from all unrighteousness. The moment of confession, we are instantly forgiven. God forgets all the sins. We are restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so we can go forward in the spiritual life. Let's begin with a moment of silent prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your incredible grace, your infinite grace that has provided everything for us. Not only everything for our salvation, but everything for our spiritual life. You have left nothing out. Your grace is more than sufficient. Now, Father, as we continue to study about the provisions of the spiritual life and what our Lord taught the disciples that last night before he went to the cross regarding principles for the church age. We pray that you would help us to understand these things, that we would be challenged by them, that we would be objective enough under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to see how these things apply to our lives, that we may be willing to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the 14th chapter of John. John chapter 14, and we continue our study of what is called the Upper Room Discourse. This is Jesus teaching to the disciples the night before He went to the cross where He began to outline to them key principles that would dominate the spiritual life of the church age. In chapter 13, He issued a new command in verse 34. There we read, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, there's probably no other concept related to the spiritual life. Well, I won't say that. Grace is one of those concepts that people don't understand. Forgiveness is one of those concepts that people don't understand. The love for God, the love for all mankind, all of these are concepts that are so vague and confused and and, uh, distorted today that it's amazing how few people really do 
try to get into the Scriptures and develop these important doctrines and to understand them. Love is one of those concepts that people have such a difficult time understanding, and especially today. We live in an age when we want to identify so many things or, or, or define love so much in terms of emotion, in terms of sentiment, in terms of warm, fuzzy feelings, that we lose sight of what this means. And when we come to the Scriptures, and we're told that we are to love everyone, people get the idea that you have to have this kind of, of personal love and warmth and good feelings about people, and they don't know anything about them. And then they look across the congregation and they see someone who just, uh, their personality makes them feel as if they're dragging their nails across a chalkboard. And they wonder how in the world they can ever love such a person. And frequently what happens in spiritual life is we're saved at a young age and we get around some people that are, perhaps they're very affectionate. They're kind people. That has to do with their personality. And so we read these commands in Scripture that we're to love one another. We see this person who seems to be a godly saint and how dear they are. They always hug everybody. They just seem to always have a kind word to say. And this is their personality. Don't confuse. One of the biggest problems we have in Christianity is confusing personality with character qualities of the spiritual life. And so what happens so frequently is you try to emulate that personality characteristic And you fall flat on your face and then you say, well, this is an impossible command. I'll just never be able to figure out how to love one another like, you know, Susie Smith. And uh, the next thing you know, you're just, you're you're giving up on part of the scripture. Same thing happens with joy. I'll never forget the time in, in my first church, I had a seminary professor of mine come down to speak at a missions conference. And Ron was one of these guys that is just effervescent. I think he never had, on his lowest day when he has when he's dominated by the blues and feels as if everything is about to end he's happier than any of us i mean he just bounces off the walls all the time and a man in the church came out and said of course he was a little slam on me says isn't it nice to see somebody who has the real joy of the lord he was he was our closet charismatic but it, it exemplified for me at that time how we confuse personality characteristics with character quality. And there are all kinds of different personalities in the Christian life. Pastors have all kinds of different personalities. Christians have all kinds of different personalities. So don't confuse loving one another. Don't confuse the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, with character quality, I mean, with a personality type. And when we come to this passage, we're going to see that Jesus presents this new command, and then he is followed by a series of four questions. And there is a correlation between these four questions that are asked by his disciples and the commandment and understanding the commandment. Remember, John wrote this gospel when he was very old. He was close to 90 years of age when he wrote this. And he had had many years to reflect upon what Jesus had taught during their time together. And as he thinks back on this particular circumstance, and he remembers how Jesus uh, stated the new commandment, he remembers what was said this sort of a Q&A time among the disciples afterwards. 
And so John brings these questions to bear in order to illustrate for us and to help us understand what Jesus means by the commandment to love one another. Notice that the model for loving one another is as I have loved you. So the love that is to characterize Christians and the Christian life is a love that was exemplified by Jesus Christ on the cross. And we examined those characteristics this last Sunday. So now we come to Peter's question. Now, the first thing that Jesus said, by, by way of introduction, he said, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. And then he states a commandment. So there is an observation to make here, that part of love may at times include leaving, departing. That's one way in which Jesus showed his love for the disciples, was to uh, go to the cross and then to ascend to heaven and to depart. So he goes on to talk about the new command. There will be a question and answer, four questions from four disciples, and then Jesus returns to the subject of love in verse 15 of the next chapter. So there's this movement that takes place back and forth, and gradually John is going to unfold for us the meaning of this kind of love. So let's look at Peter's question. The first question in the dialogue. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me, but you shall follow later. Peter said to him in his reply, Lord, why can't I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Now, when the Lord says that I am going, He uses the word hupago in the Greek. This is the present active indicative, second person singular, meaning to go, to take a journey. means to leave, and sometimes it includes the idea of death, sort of a euphemism, I'm going to die. Generally, in John... It is used of Jesus going to the Father. Usually means to withdraw, to journey, to go somewhere, to travel, to. It's used especially of Christ and His going to the Father. It's characteristic in John to use it of Jesus. In John 7.33, Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go, hupago, then I go to Him who sent me. John 8.14, Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, hupago, going to the Father. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. That is what he said to the Jews, and that's this earlier statement he refers to here in John uh, 13.33. John 8.21, he said, Therefore again to them, I go away, and you shall seek me, and shall die in your sin. Where I am going, hupago, you cannot come. So Jesus has his answer to Peter. He says, Where I go, going to the Father, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. See, Peter is like many Jews. He hasn't differentiated 
between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And the apostles are still expecting the kingdom right now, the messianic rule. That's demonstrated even after the resurrection and just prior to the ascension. They asked Jesus, is your kingdom going to be now? When is the promise of your kingdom going to be fulfilled? They expected it immediately. So Peter voices the question. He's confused. Lord, I don't understand where you're going. I don't understand why you need to go. That doesn't fit my concept of eschatology. What's really going on here? What he is asking is the subtext. You have to read between the lines. Now, I'm not talking about some allegorical interpretation. But what Peter is really asking is the question that believers have asked for ages. Why was it necessary for Jesus to ascend to heaven? What's the significance of this intervening age in which we live? What's the purpose of the church age? He did not understand the dynamics and the difference between the first advent and the second advent. What Jesus is saying is, you can't follow me now. And it's important to understand the Greek terminology here. The word for now is the Greek word noon. This is a general time frame. It's an adverb of time, meaning now at this general time period. Now at this time, or now during this age, it is not for you to come to me. In other words, there's more going on here, and I have another plan for you. There's a gap, there's a delay in when you're going to come to me. And then in verse 37, we see Peter's second question. And Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you Right now, and the New American Standard did an excellent job in catching the significance here. Because when Peter repeats this back to the Lord, he doesn't use the same word the Lord used. The Lord said, You can't come now, noon. And Peter said, Why can't I come now? And he uses the word RT. And this emphasizes the immediate present. Why can't I come right now, Lord? What do you mean? So, so he's confused and he misrepresents what the Lord has said. And then he goes on and he says something that is virtually blasphemous. He said, I will lay down my life for you. What do you mean, Peter? You're going to lay your life down for me? Let's look at the Greek. As soon as you look at the Greek, you immediately realize how close he borders to heresy. He uses this preposition, huper, H-U-P-E-R, plus the genitive of advantage. This is the same phrase that is used over and again when Jesus says, I came to give my life as a substitute for you. Huper plus the genitive of advantage. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, who pair plus the genitive. This is the, the preposition of substitution and emphasizes the substitutionary aspect of the death of Christ. That he died in our place on the cross. And yet Peter, because he is confused about eschatology, just to note, this is why it's important to study prophecy, is so that we understand God's plan and God's program for the ages. Because Peter is confused about eschatology, he then utters this blasphemous statement that I will lay down my life. I will die as your substitute, Lord. 
instead of understanding that the Lord is the one who will substitute for him. Notice how sharp Jesus' rebuke is in verse 38. Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Are you really going to die as my substitute, Peter? Truly, truly, point of doctrine. We've seen this phrase over and over again in the gospel. Amen, amen. Jesus is saying, pay attention. This is important. I say to you, a cock shall crow, shall not crow until you deny me three times. What is Jesus saying? What's the context? The context is the new commandment. You are to love me. You are to love one another as I loved you. How do I love you? I die as your substitute. So Peter says, well, Lord, I'm going to die as your substitute. You don't have to do this. And, and Jesus says, Peter, look, you don't really understand what love is yet because you're going to deny me when you're asked if you're one of my disciples. You don't understand this at all. But in spite of the fact that you deny me, I will not deny you. And it takes us back to the passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2 where the Lord says that you may be faithless, but I am faithful. The Lord is the one who keeps us secure. You see, we get confused here because the uh, people who divided the gospel into chapters put the chapter break at the wrong place. Look at this as if there's no chapter or verses. There's no chapter break. There's no, there's no verse break. Jesus in 14.1 is still answering the question that Peter has raised earlier. He goes on in 14.1 to say, Peter, let not your heart be troubled. Don't be anxious. Don't be upset. Don't be confused about this. Why? What is, what's going on here? Jesus is saying, Peter, you're going to deny me because you haven't understood what love is yet. You haven't understood the application of of the principle of loving one another as I have loved you. You're just mouthing off here saying you'll die for me, but you don't really mean that. Uh, You're going to deny me in just a very short time, just a few hours, you're going to claim that you never, never knew me. But you don't need to worry about me because this is what my love is like. I will not deny you. In fact, I will go to my father's house And I'll prepare a place for you and I'm going to return so that you can be with me. That's the kind of love that Jesus is exemplifying. It's a love that is not conditioned upon the response of the person loved. When Jesus says, I love you, it is not based on the character. It is not based on the attractiveness. It is not based on anything in the object of love. It is totally based on who Jesus is and what he does on the cross. And that is why, as believers, the kind of love we are to have for one another, this impersonal love, and the reason I call it impersonal love, is because whether we know the person or not, we are still to love them in this way. That does not imply that we, we uh, need to know them, we need to spend time with them, but we are always to love them as Christ loved, loved us and went to the cross as our substitute. It is an unconditional love in that there are no conditions placed on it. There is no statement, I will love you, I will do this for you, if you do this for me. It is based exclusively on who Jesus is and what He did on the cross. That is how we are to love one another, because of who and what God is, and what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. So in all of this, our Lord is demonstrating, and John is bringing these events together, 
in order to demonstrate for us what this love is. Now, in John 14, 1, Jesus utters this command. It's a present passive imperative. Let not your heart, your cardia, that is the, the innermost part of the thinking of your soul. Heart does not refer to emotion in the Scriptures, but heart refers to the thinking part of the soul, the innermost part of the soul where thought takes place. Let not your heart be troubled. And the word there is terasso, which means to stir up, to disturb, to be unsettled. It talks about when a storm is in the Sea of Galilee and all of the waves are torn up, and it means to throw into confusion. It's a present imperative which emphasizes that it is a habit pattern in the Christian life. The same idea is reiterated in Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing. Let not your heart be troubled. The passive voice means that it's a result of circumstances. Here it's the result of what Jesus has just said, that he's going to leave. And so he said, don't be confused in the inner mentality of your soul. The reason they're confused is they don't know doctrine. So the solution is a doctrinal solution and a focus on faith. Believe in God. Believe also in me. What we see here is a very interesting literary device that that the Lord used to emphasize a very important doctrinal principle. It's called a chiasmos or a chiasm. We've studied this in the past. It's a stylistic device where there are two series, two lists. And the first word in the first series corresponds to the last word of the second series. Now, that will be clear in a minute. The emphasis is on what's in the middle. It's like a frame. So it's laid out like this. You have a list, A, B, C, and then it's repeated, but it's repeated backwards. C1, then B1, then A1. So the first thing mentioned is repeated in the second list at the end, and the emphasis is always going to be on what is in the middle, what's right here. So when we come to this phrase, in the Greek it's written like this. It doesn't come across in your English translation correctly at all. In the Greek... Jesus says, believe in God, in me, believe also. And so what is the emphasis? The emphasis is what's going on right here in the middle. He identifies himself with undiminished deity. And so faith in God is identical to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is a profound claim from the Lord in his own deity. Jesus Christ, as we have seen over and again in the Gospel of John, declared himself to be undiminished deity. This idea of liberal theology that Jesus never really claimed to be God is totally fraudulent. He did time and again. He used overt statements to claim that he was God. He used subtle phrases to claim that he was God. He used grammar to indicate that he was God. For example, when the Pharisees said that that uh, uh, he had that Abraham had died centuries before Jesus was born. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And the present tense indicated his continuous existence in eternity past. And the phrase, ego me" is a translation of the Old Testament name for God, Yahweh, the sacred tetragrammaton, translated by some as Jehovah. 
which is really a conflation of two different Hebrew names for God and is not found anywhere in the Scriptures. So when Jesus says, believe in God, in me believe also, he is emphasizing the solution to confusion. When we're disoriented to life, when we're going through emotional distress, when anxiety dominates our thinking, when we become unstable because of emotion, the solution is always doctrine. It is the Word of God, the promise of God, the principles of God's Word, and the precepts of God's Word that give stability to our soul. And so at this time when Jesus looks at His disciples and they're confused and they're anxious, they've given up their careers, they've given up their jobs, they've moved away from their homes, they've given up everything to follow Him, and they know that, that the authorities uh, who want to arrest Him and kill Him want to do the same thing to them, they would just be left there saying, Lord, we've given up everything for You and You're leaving? Wait a minute, I don't understand. There's this sense there when they almost feel betrayed and Jesus says, Believe in God, in me believe also. And then he goes on to explain the doctrine that is to bring some stability to their thinking. He's going to get into the realm of eschatology, which is that branch of theology which focuses on end time events or last things. It's from the Greek word eschatos, meaning last things, and logos, meaning the study of last things. And Jesus says... In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Now, there's an Old Testament background to this that would have come to mind, to their minds at this time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 17, verses 7 through 10, the Lord makes this statement in reference to David's desire to build a house for the Lord. See, that's the background. David has just conquered Jerusalem. He has just had a great military victory. And the standard operating procedure of ancient Near Eastern kings was that after a military victory, they would build a temple to their God. And so David is going to be like every other king in the ancient world and build a temple, wants to build a temple to God. And this is God's response. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, that is literally Yahweh of the armies, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be leader over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a name, that is a reputation, like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be moved again. And the wicked will not waste them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. Now, when was the Lord to build this house? It is not merely the mention of a temple, but it also relates to the end time events. You see, what's going on here is in parallel to what Peter has done. David wanted to build something for God. David wanted to give his life for Jesus. God refused and gave David something instead of a house. He gave him an eternal dynasty. This precedes the giving of the Davidic covenant. Instead of Jesus giving uh, Peter something right then, he gives him eternal life. He gives them a new commandment with a future promise of a house. 
just as he gave David a future promise of a house. This expectation of a future dwelling place is also described in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. And all these died in faith without receiving the promises, that is, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. See, the picture is that these uh, patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, dwelt in tents. They were Bedouins. They had no permanent dwelling place, and they lived that way throughout their entire lives. In verse 15, and, and they, they were, but they had their eye on a permanent promise of God that was in the future. Verse 15, And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, that is, coming out from uh, Chaldea, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city... For them, this is the city of the New Jerusalem. This is described in Revelation 21:10 and 11. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And then in verse 24. The nations will walk by its light. That's the Shekinah glory of God that illuminates the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So what Jesus is announcing to his disciples is that he is going to heaven and there he is going to be involved in the construction project of the new Jerusalem. And it will not be until he has completed that project that he returns. And this takes us to an important subject in eschatology, which is God's plan for human history. And here we see an overview of future events. Right now, we don't know exactly where we are, but we're somewhere over here in the church age. We do not know when the rapture will occur, which ends the church age, and all believers living and dead will be caught up instantaneously to be with the Lord in the air. This is called the rapture of the church from the Latin word uh, rapto that is used to translate uh, the phrase caught up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Sometime after the tribulation, I mean after the rapture, we're not sure how long. Some people say it could be years. Others think it's just a matter of days or weeks. The Antichrist who is called in Daniel 9, the prince who is to come, will sign a covenant with Israel. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel gives the chronology for Israel. He said there would be 69 periods of seven, 69 heptads between the decree of Artaxerxes to return to Israel and to rebuild the city Jerusalem and the cutting off of Messiah. And so that was fulfilled literally and can be dated and the numbers worked out and it comes out to the Sunday just before the Monday, really just before the crucifixion of Christ when he enters in to Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. And then there is this pause. There is what's called an intercalation. It's a parenthesis. 
There is, it was a mystery doctrine in the church age. Mystery meaning it was not revealed, I mean, in the Old Testament that there would be an intervening time between the first coming and the second coming. And so the church age comes in, and the church age is an age of trends. It is not an age of fulfilled prophecy. There is no prophecy that need be fulfilled in the church age. So when you hear people talk about the signs of the times, and frankly right now with all this millennial fervor going on, there is all sorts of apocalyptic insanity. And uh, last year during the summer when we had Tommy here, and he gave us some excellent insights into uh, prophecy. We saw there are different ways of interpreting prophecy. One of those is historicism. Historicism is looking for the signs today. And this is wrong. Every, all the events of Matthew 24 and the events of the tribulation between Revelation 4 and Revelation and the end of Revelation are all future events. And prophecy, the clock of prophecy has stopped. And it doesn't start again until after the rapture. But the rapture just ends the church age. It doesn't begin the tribulation. What begins the tribulation in Daniel 9 is the signing of that peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel. And that starts the clock running again in terms of the seven-year tribulation period, which is the time also called Jacob's Trouble. The emphasis once again returns to Israel. It is the time of Satan's greatest temper tantrum on the earth, and God pours out his wrath upon the earth and all those who have uh, rejected his grace and rejected salvation. All believers in this age, alive and dead, are caught up to be with the Lord in the air, And during the seven years of tribulation on the earth, what's taking place in the heavens is the judgment seat of Christ. It is at that time that believers are evaluated in terms of their spiritual growth during the church age, and they receive rewards on that basis. Or perhaps if you're a disobedient carnal believer, then you lose rewards, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It culminates with the marriage of the Lamb, and then the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth, at the second coming, accompanied by the church, his bride. At that time, there is judgment. All those who have survived the tribulation, uh, all the believers go into the millennium. Unbelievers go into uh, Hades. And then there's a thousand years of, of the millennium. Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, are cast into the bottomless pit. And at the end of the thousand years, there is the great white throne judgment where all unbelievers on all of the fallen angels, including Satan, are cast into the lake of fire, and then the earth is burned up in a mighty cataclysm, and God creates a new heaven and a new earth. That is the basic overview of what will come about in prophecy. And we are somewhere in the church age, and we don't know where. We think that we're close to the end. I personally think that that more things are in place today than have ever been in place in human history, but that's merely stage setting. It's not looking for fulfilled prophecy. and just Certain things have to be in place during the tribulation period. For example, the Antichrist has to sign a peace treaty with the nation Israel. So there has to be an unregenerate, 
nation Israel in the land with a government structure in order for that to take place. We also know that during the tribulation at the halfway point, the Antichrist will desecrate the temple. And there's tremendous movement among some groups in Israel to rebuild the temple. Of course, they cannot gain access to the Temple Mount, which is where the Dome of the Rock, the second most significant site in Islam, is located. But there are those that think that uh, something will happen to destroy that and they will rebuild the temple there. They have to. But it doesn't have to be completely rebuilt. It can just have a basic altar in place uh, for it to be functional. And now the, uh, the uh, Institute for Temple Studies in Israel has completely reconstructed all of the articles to go into the temple. So they are standing ready. They have uh, rediscovered the priestly line. They, they can test for a genetic marker for the sons of Aaron. It is, uh, it's testable, and they've identified certain uh, Jews who have that genetic marker, so they've re, uh, restarted the priesthood, and these men are in training so that they are in place once the temple is rebuilt. So lots of things like this are taking place in this age, which seem to indicate that we may be very close to the end. But I always offer a little warning. Every generation since Christ ascended has thought that they saw more of these indications. So it could still be another 100 or 200 years before our Lord returns. Now, one of the greatest areas of controversy in the church is the timing of the rapture. The rapture is defined as the instantaneous translation of all church-age believers into immortal resurrection bodies when Christ returns in the clouds. First the dead rise, then an instant later those living receive their immortal bodies without experiencing physical death. Now, how do we know that the rapture is different from the second coming? Let's look at the contrast between the rapture and the second coming. First of all, at the rapture, Christ comes for his own. He comes for the church. At the second coming, at the end of the tribulation, Jesus Christ comes with his own. The church accompanies him. Secondly... At the rapture, Christ comes in the air. He comes in the clouds. He does not come all the way to the earth. At the second coming, Christ comes to the earth. His feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives where he ascended. Thirdly, at the rapture, Christ claims his bride. He comes for his own, for his bride, and claims his bride And at the second coming, he comes with his bride. At the rapture, there is the translation of all believers alive and dead. At the second coming, there is no translation at all. Those who live during the tribulation who are believers do not receive resurrection bodies at the end of the tribulation. They still have their mortal bodies and they will marry and have children and repopulate the earth during the millennial kingdom. It is their children who will have the opportunity to reject Christ and to reject 
the grace of God during the millennium. It is those who reject salvation during the millennium who will rebel and align themselves with Satan when he is released at the end of the millennium for the last great revolt against God in human history. That is point five. The, at the rapture, the church age believers receive resurrection bodies and there will no longer be any procreation. And at the second coming, uh, the believers who survive have their mortal bodies and they repopulate the millennial kingdom. Point number six, the rapture is imminent. That means there are no signs that have to be fulfilled prior to the rapture. No prophecy has to be fulfilled. It can happen at any moment. For something to, be, to happen at any moment means nothing precedes it. At the second coming, there are definite predicted signs. There, is an, there are to be earthquakes. Incidentally, at this last uh, pre-trib rapture conference I attended, one of the papers that I picked up is a lengthy analysis uh, put, put out on, based on data given by the U.S. Geological Society that despite the fact that we hear on news reports about more and more earthquakes, the frequency of earthquakes is actually diminishing. So you will always hear these crazy apocalyptic prophecy nuts talking about how there's more and more earthquakes and Jesus is coming soon. And the fact is that the frequency of earthquakes is actually diminishing. But you see, all of the signs that Jesus states in Matthew 24, earthquakes, wars and rumors of wars, and all of the other signs take place within the tribulation period not outside, not in the church age. These are events that immediately precede the tribulation. That's why Jesus said when you see these signs, this generation will not pass away. It's the generation who sees the signs. It's the tribulation generation spoken of there. And Jesus says when you see these things happen, I will come quickly. And the Greek word is takus. And takus means not quickly, uh, in terms of it's going to happen real soon, but once you see this, these events happen, it will happen very rapidly. The unfolding of these events will happen rapidly once it begins. So there, is, there are definite predicted signs related to the second coming. Seventh, the tribulation begins after the rapture. Not immediately after. There's a, the rapture doesn't begin it, as we said already. The signing of the peace treaty with the Antichrist begins it, but the tribulation follows the rapture, and in the second coming, it is the millennial kingdom that follows the second coming. Jesus returns to the earth and establishes his reign as the Davidic king. Uh, Point number eight, the rapture is for believers only, and the second coming affects all mankind. Unbelievers are taken off of the earth, and believers who survive the tribulation go in to the millennial kingdom. So we see these distinctions. Now this is what Jesus is pointing out is that in order for him to completely demonstrate what his love for us, for the disciples means, he has to leave. What we're going to see him develop in his answer is he leaves so that he can send another comforter, the Holy Spirit. And all that comes with the Holy Spirit and all of the spiritual assets that we receive for the spiritual life in the church age is going to further develop all of the 
aspects of Jesus' tremendous love for us, but it's necessary for Him to leave in order to give these greater grace gifts. Now, that is how He answers the first question. And we will see the other three questions answered next time when He answers Thomas's question and Andrew's question and Philip's question and then develops the concept of love. But all of this is important. If we're going to understand this, and it's crucial to understand this, what does Jesus say in verse 35? It is by this impersonal, unconditional love, not just an absence of mental attitude sins, but something that reflects the unique love of Jesus Christ to every believer. And incidentally, why do you think Jesus mentions the fact that that in this context of love, love for one another, in my Father's house are many dwelling places? Just a little application. Read between the lines. Just remember that person you know who their personality sort of grates on you like fingernails on the blackboard. We're to learn to love them with the same kind of love Christ has for us because they may be our roommate in heaven. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for your grace that you uh, transform us by the Holy Spirit who regenerates us. And then as we grow, you develop this production in us that this love is not something we generate within ourselves but is uniquely the product of God the Holy Spirit as a result of your word that, that fills up our soul and edifies us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, that right now they would take the opportunity to make that certain. All that is necessary is for them to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. They don't have to walk an aisle, raise their hand. They don't have to commit to self-reformation. They don't have to have an emotional experience. All they have to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. It's a free gift that God has provided for all of us. Scripture says, As many as received Him, to them gave He the power to be called the sons of God. Father, we pray for us as a body of believers that we might be willing to accept the challenge of this command, that we are to love one another just as Christ loved the church, and that we would be willing to look at the Scriptures to gain a clear, objective understanding of what this love entails that we may indeed exemplify it 